So even when sometimes I'm on the other side of the camera and someone wants to feature me, I'm asking, well, who's, you know, who's telling the story? Who's taking the pictures? And we have to realize that we have some agency and we have power. If, if people want to feature us and tell our stories, we should have some control over who's doing it. And it's, if we're not doing that, then what? What's going on, y'all? You have just tuned in to the Black Shutter Podcast. On this show, I invite black photographers, filmmakers, editors, and creative business folks to discuss their experiences and share their wisdom. You will hear about their work, their challenges, and their inspirations. My name is Idris Talib Solomon, a creative director, photographer, and filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. So if you dig photography and you love the culture, keep your mind open and your headphones locked. This is the Black Shutter Podcast. For me, the word indigenous brings up images of Native Americans fighting for their land, fighting for their culture, fighting for the survival of their people. When photographers choose to stay local and document the changes in their communities, they are fighting to preserve the history, the culture, and the memories of their people. They are preventing the erasure of an entire community. What does it mean to document your community in the midst of inevitable change? What does it feel like to watch your favorite restaurant, your favorite barbershop, or your favorite bar close down? How do you say goodbye to the friends and family members who lose the battle against gentrification? Today's guest discovered that a camera can be used to preserve the history of his historic town, New Orleans. He is a writer and a photojournalist. He is on the board of trustees at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art, as well as the board of directors of the New Orleans Photo Alliance. He has also been named one of eight Louisianians of the year for 2017 by Louisiana Life Magazine. El Casimo Harris, what's going on, bro? Welcome to the Black Shutter Podcast. It's an honor to be here, man. I really appreciate it. Just here in lovely New Orleans, and it's a beautiful day. Nice, nice. What's the weather looking like down there? It was, the humidity is low, and um, it was about 75 degrees last time I was outside. So we've been having really sunny days and cool, unseasonably, uncharacteristically uh, cooler nights. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, like how low does it go? Uh, well, nah, I mean, it's New Orleans, bro. <laughs> I mean, it might drop down to 70. I'm just going by feel. You know, we, we live in a real hot, muggy, humid place. So it's. Uh, I think this has been an aberration, this weather for us. And it's something that I've definitely been enjoying. Man, that's crazy, man. You say You say low 70s. To, to to folks in the northeast and we're just like bruh <laughs> we deal with like 40 degree weather and it bounces back and forth man but so like it must oh be- no i'm not i'm not complaining about the temperatures i'm i'm just happy usually it would be about 80 degrees at night here man so it's, it basically stays yeah. it stays hot it stays hot down there at this time of the year yep nice nice so What's that like? You got this nice, beautiful weather in a quarantine. We can't even like really step outside and enjoy it to 
to this fullest? What's that like? You know, I think it's, I think it's a beautiful thing in a sense of these unfortunate circumstances that at least you can look out the window and see some beauty in such an ugly situation. Mm-hmm. I would hate to have uh, very bad weather, inclement weather, back-to-back, day upon day, uh, rainy weather. I think that will play with your soul even uh, in addition to the situation that we already in. We're like living in Seattle or something, right, where it just rains like 90% of the Thanks. time. Yeah. yeah, man, I hear you. Man. Yeah. It's like if you're able to find some kind of beauty or some sort of, uh, you know, happiness or joy during like a, a crazy situation like this pandemic, then, you know, you're on the side of winning for a little bit, you know? I think we always have to do that. I mean, we always have to try to find some some glimmer of hope in this situation. And then being a black man in America, I think it's a perpetual way of life. Uh, some glimmer of hope. Uh, and not just a black man, a black woman, uh, a, a person of color. And I understand that this is a situation beyond uh, race, in a sense. In a sense. But... In a sense, because it's uh, the health disparities towards uh, black and brown people have been highlighted again and again. But it is something that I guess the entire world is experiencing at one time. But to my earlier point, you know, just being black, it's so, uh, I'm definitely, I'm black and I'm proud. and in addition to that, we've had to always try to find some type of glimmer of hope. Uh, you know, we shall overcome. We're going to be all right. Uh, you know, so on and so forth with these anthems that we've had over these years to give us some uh, sustenance, some resistance, and some hope. Yeah, man. It's, just, it's a survival mechanism, man. In order for us right. to survive all these centuries, you know, in Western soil, we've had to constantly come up with, you know, coping mechanisms and ways of, of healing that um that weren't there before. You know, we had to be creative in how we survive and how we cope with the daily struggles of things, you know? Correct. So um you go by L or do you go by Casimu? My byline is always El Casimo, but uh, but in conversation, the overwhelmingly majority of people just call me Casimo. Casimo, got it. So Casimo, yeah. uh, where are you from originally? New Orleans. Born and bred. Yep, yep. I didn't move away until college. Ah, where did you go to college? I went to Middle Tennessee State University of Memphis, bar. Tennessee, as they would say, is mm-hmm. Murfreesboro, but you know, with the accent, uh, Murfreesboro, uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And then I went to graduate school at the University of Mississippi. Nice. So every, you just stayed down south. I did. I did. But uh, that south is a very different south than New Orleans. Okay. And Tennessee south. Uh, Murfreesboro was very different than Oxford. I mean, you know, that, that kind of goes without saying. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Woodstock, New York is a whole lot different than 
uh, bed style, or yeah. you know, yeah. Manhattan, you know, what I'm yeah. So what what did you study uh, for undergrad? In undergrad, I was really in high school. I was really in the jazz a whole lot, and I hung out with this guy, Delphia Marcellus, a lot. And uh, Marcellus, obviously, yeah, Delphia Marcellus. I was really cool with a lot of people in the Marcellus family. Nice. Uh, so a bunch of mentors to me, particularly Winston and Delphio, and and uh, Ellis, who recently passed the father. Wow. So. Uh, so when I went to college, when I finished high school, I decided that, you know, I felt that playing the trumpet had some type of glass ceiling for me. I just didn't feel like I could be great. And I put way too much pressure on myself, but I decided to go to college to major in uh, recording industry management. So I wanted mm-hmm. to be a producer. So I was studying music business and things like that. And somewhere along the line, I just was honest with myself, and I realized that the my favorite part of being on the studio was when we went when we went on break. <laughs> so I eventually changed my major from that, and this was a long journey. Uh, it took me about six years to graduate from college. Mm-hmm. So somewhere along the line, I switched my major to entrepreneurship, and at that time, I got a double minor and uh, business administration, but then mass communications. So I started writing mm-hmm. in uh, undergrad in the school newspaper and stuff. That's crazy. You went to school for entrepreneurialism and business management and mass communication. Now, that's a, yeah. I think that's a great combination for anybody that's, that chooses to go the freelance route. And I'm sure like at the time, it didn't sound like there was any photography um, in that mix, you may have had it as an interest, but it wasn't something that you were, it doesn't seem like it was something you were actively pursuing. So to end up being a photojournalist with an entrepreneurial background and a business background and a writing background, I think that just, you know, that, that did something crazy for your career that you probably wouldn't have, um, thought of otherwise. I would agree. Uh, my interest in photography at that time was, if they had Instagram from 1998 to 2005, that's what my photos looked like. Uh, you know, I remember I took a, a camera, like an Olympus uh, film camera, in my first college party in Tennessee. And, hmm. you know, I was just taking pictures, just documenting all that. I mean, when I took golf classes, I, I had a camera. I just was really, I, I was prolific with the snapshots. But, as far as pursuing it, like thinking about composition mm-hmm. or any technical kind of thing, not at all. So you had an interest in writing and communication, right? Correct. So right. do you think that that interest in in verbal or, or literal te- storytelling is something that was just innate and the camera just gave you a different way of telling a story? I think so, actually. I haven't been asked that question that way, but I really do think that. I've always been interested in stories. I've always, uh, you know, I guess you you could have called me a nosy child. I was always listening to some conversation that when I got older, I realized it was just dialogue and I would incorporate that in my writing. Yeah. And 
you know, really reporting for scene and details, uh, all those type things that just inform my uh, photography practice now. But uh, yeah, I think I think you said it the best way I've ever heard it. Yes. You, you know why? I think that when I heard your story about, you know, pursuing the trumpet, was it the trumpet? Right. Right. Like I had an early, early career in music doing hip hop. And at right. a certain point, yeah, man, yeah, it was crazy. You know, but there was storytelling in that and it was writing in that. It was an interest in music. And, but at a certain point, I chose to go the visual arts direction, you know, and I, that's still my music experience still informs the way I think, the way I tell stories. And I think for me, it just boiled down to I needed to find ways of being expressive, you know? So whether right. it was through music or whether it was through the camera or through design or whatever, or just straight up writing, I just needed a place to like have my voice heard or seen. You know what I mean? I think that's important. I mean, stories are like the earliest forms and the most tried and true and lasting forms of communication. And it's just important that we express ourselves in some type of way and we be declarative about it. Yes. Whether that be uh, how you arrange your desk, what type of clothing you choose to wear, Mm -hmm. or what chocolate you like, some type of way, Everyone needs some form of self-expression. Absolutely. I agree 100%. You know, so are you a full-time photographer? Yeah, I am now. <laughs> yeah. I am a full-time storyteller now. The last full-time job I had was assistant director of communications at a university where I had, you know, doing public relations I uh, published about two or three magazines and doing photography, but uh, that was a job that I realized I would never move up to the director position. And there also apparently was no room for me to uh, go over and teach as well. And I felt very underutilized there and underappreciated and it just was my time to go. So I left. It sounds like you, you have like a keen eye in, in recognizing glass ceilings. You know, recognizing when, <laughs> you know, there's only so much further you can go before there's a roadblock. You know? Yeah. I think that's, that's important. You have to have that foresight. You know, um, I always say this, and I probably said this in the um, episode earlier, but... You know, first thing I do when I get into a new situation, like especially like a work situation, is first thing I do is I look for the ladder. And if there ain't no ladder or the ladder is very short, I start looking for the exit, you know? Wow. And that's how I've been. <laughs> that's how I've been, like, in, in a lot of situations in my adult life. It's like, if there ain't no room for me to grow in this place, right. yo, I, I got to go. I'm not going to be a big fish, right. you know? Because then it's like, where's the challenge? Where's the growth opportunity? Where's, you know, where's the interest in, in becoming better? Somebody pushing you to be better, do better. You only get there if you have opportunities to, to break you out of your comfort zone and break you out of your shell. 
then you're able to really flex your muscles and see just how much you're capable of doing. I completely agree. There was a woman who I work with named Wanda, and she used to, you know, she she always came in like, well, where you at, Black? Where you at, Black? That's, that's how she talked. And she would say, uh, you know, maybe it is time for you to go. And I was saying, well, you know, I'm getting married soon. I have a kid, another kid on the way. So it's like safe. And she said, all safe money ain't good money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn. Yep. She was like, you don't know what this money holding you back from. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, man. I mean, because that safe money is like your blink and 20 years later, you're in the same place. And you're sitting there looking at your career, whatever, whatever career you're in. And you're just like, wow, what, like, aside from time and experience at this place, what did I actually do? What did I accomplish? And it's not for everybody, right? Some people actually have right. the 20 years where they, where they are growing and they are being challenged with new opportunities. But in a lot of situations, that doesn't happen. That's not the case. And we just end up with a 20-year-long career where you just did a lot of mediocre work. Right. Yeah, that's that's not what I want for myself, man. Nor nor my family, uh, you know, my kids, you know. I, I definitely want to be great. Yeah, man, especially as and a storyteller. Yeah, exactly. That's, I, I want to be the one, one of the greatest ever to have lived. There you go, man. I'm right there with you, bro. Right there with you. So speaking of family, right? right? Speaking of right. family, uh, you and I both shared pages in the New York Times Still Lives project recently. The project right. focused on about 15 photographers documenting like visual diary of their, their time in quarantine. And I think what was interesting about that is you and I were the only two brothers included, and we both chose to focus on our families. You know, how does your family influence your work or inspire your work? Right. Yeah, I would say a lot. I used to be a huge comic fan. Uh, I would listen to all his uh, CDs, and he would always have something at the end, Pops Rap. Yeah. Yeah, where his dad would just, you know, just wax poetic. Uh, for a while to end the the album, and it, it just was a tight, tight kind of thing. And you know, his dad was saying uh, playing overseas was kind of washing up for him, and that was ending. And he said he was sitting across the table looking at his little boy, and he said his eyes was looking at him like, well, "What you gonna do?" You know. <laughs> and then, like when I had a son, it was like that. Like, man, you know, I wasn't in a relationship with his mom, and I was hella underemployed. And, uh, you know, I, I just had to come to a situation where I, I bet on myself. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, move to North Carolina and work in some factory, which no hate on that. But I had already finished graduate school and, you know, I knew I had skills. And I knew that if I worked really hard, those skills would, you know, translate into some income. So... Uh, my kids, so even now having a second child and a third child on the way, it's like uh, you just always want to provide for them and 
you know, um, with my artistic practice, you know, trying to keep a good archives of uh, notes and uh, try not to lose hard drives and <laughs> do all these things that, you know, when one day I'm, uh, you know, returning to the earth, that, you know, they have this work that I've amassed that they could mm-hmm. continue to live off of and, you know, build a legacy off of that. So, uh, right, right. So my uh, kids, they're inspirational in that way. And then for my wife, you know, you just want to make her happy. And, uh, you know, and she's very supportive too. Uh, And she's also in communication. So, you know, sometimes we can come together and help each other. And and sometimes it's like being on the sidelines, clapping hands and standing. Yeah, yeah. Rooting for each other. So family is just uh, paramount for me. And uh, it's something that keeps me motivated every day. That's great, man. You know, in your, on your site, you mentioned there was one project. I think it was about reflecting on... Um, is it reflecting on Katrina? And you mentioned mm-hmm. August 29th, 2005, as the day you became a photographer. Why, why is that day important to you? That's the day Katrina hit. And, you know, now being 15 years removed from writing that, it probably would be more accurate if I said someday in October 2005, about 45 days after Hurricane Katrina. But I said that day because that's the day Hurricane Katrina hit. And I was only 10 days into graduate school. And I was a TA for a guy named D. Michael Cheers at University of Mississippi. And uh, he was a photographer. You know, he worked for Ebony and Jet for a number of years uh, and did things like that. I think he's still a professor uh, out in California. Anyway, he just had in his mind that he wanted to take about four or five students from the student chapter of uh, National Association of Black Journalists back to New Orleans or to New Orleans and do a documentary and just really cover this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I just really didn't want to go back. I just was so hurt by seeing my city devastated that I just didn't want to go back. And when I went back, he, he said if I didn't go, I would fail the class. Uh, so I begrudgingly went, and I complained the whole time. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until it's was a five-hour trip from Oxford to New Orleans, and it wasn't until we got to New Orleans, well, outside of New Orleans, and you could start to see, like, how that the earth was moved and trees torn thunder. And, and then when we got to New Orleans proper, you know, I had my reporter's notebook, I had a tape recorder, but it was that camera that uh, I borrowed from the school that really helped me through that moment, going back to my hometown. And it was the immediacy of being able to see a narrative or see stories on the back of that camera that really pulled me into photography. Now, I never stopped pursuing, pursuing writing. I I had something published earlier this year. Uh but that day I added photography to my practice and I'm very thankful that I did that. 
I think that um, looking at your work is very NOLA, you know. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I've never been to NOLA, you know. And oh, come on, bro. I know, I know. Don't, but but check it out. When I get there, man, we're going to link for sure once this quarantine is lifted, you know. Um, right. But from what I always see in, you know, the most immediate media pictures of NOLA is it's like white Mardi Gras and impoverished black NOLA. And once in a while, there's some like music scenes or something around voodoo or something like that, right? Because that's what the media right. gives us. And when I say your photos, your work is NOLA, I feel like you are an insider. You are there, born and bred, and you're just showing NOLA in a way that is very familiar to you, especially as a black man, that I just don't see. I don't see that kind of in-depth work surrounding New Orleans. You know what I mean? So looking at your work, I'm right. just, is a, is so much appreciation for it because I see the people, I see the culture, I see the history. And it just makes it feel like a place that I can connect with outside of like the, the super polished pictures about Mardi Gras and getting drunk and, and colorful beads and stuff like that. Yeah, all those things do exist here. Uh, all of that. Everything you describe mm -hmm. really exists here. You know, I, I would, I guess I would liken, not I guess, I liken uh, New Orleans to New York in the sense that if, you know, a lot of outsiders think that all of New York is Times Square, which I bet you lived in there for many years. Uh, you probably haven't been to Times Square in a long time unless you had to. Yo, sure. <laughs> it's it's a, I go there by accident. Right, right. That's what the first quarter is like for us. You know, there are things, I'm sure there are hip things in Times Square. There are hip things in the first quarter, but by and large, you just, uh, it's more of a tourist spot, but it's not indicative of the entire city. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think New Orleans uh, has a big debt to pay to the black folk here in that the city promotes our indigenous culture, be it black masculine Indians, some people call them Mardi Gras Indians, mm -hmm. our social aid and pleasure clubs, the second line, uh, the black hand, black hands in a pot. So uh, the cooks who are not named, uh, who probably deserve to be a chef, but maybe don't have that, those certain initials or opportunities behind their names. Uh, so we, this city has capitalized off of those things, but it never reinvests in that culture of those people. Or uh, I don't, I don't mean those people, our people, my people. I don't mean those people in a derogatory sense, so let me rephrase that. Uh, but so it's going to put posters in Paris about like coming to Orleans and show people eating poor boys and all this type stuff and make all this money off tourism dollars. But you have school systems that are still failing, and I, I think by design, mm -hmm. you have all these type things that are not reinvested into the culture that really makes New Orleans what it is. So one of the things that happened after Katrina was that I, I saw so many people outside of our culture telling our story. I don't have problems with 
outside of telling our stories. Because there are some photographers I can think of right now who, I mean, uh, are deeply embedded into the community and the community loves them back. Uh, but it's, I would say that some of those guys are aberrations. Uh, more often than not, it's people outside of our community who can commodify our genius and we're not telling our own stories. So I developed a deep uh, passion and an unwavering commitment to uh, tell stories of people who look like me. Yeah, that's that's so important. And I think to go back to your point about photographers don't necessarily have to be from New Orleans or from whatever community to be able to go in and photograph it. I don't think that's the problem. Right. I think what the, I think it becomes problematic when people from those communities are not getting opportunities to tell the stories. You know, it can't just be, right. it, it can't just be like outsiders always swooping in, capturing the story and then disappearing into the wind. You know what I mean? Like right. when you have people on the ground who are willing, able and capable of telling these stories, who have connection with the people, with the community, with the culture. And when that is a race, then where's our voice, you know? Right. And there's this guy I know. Um, uh, he has three last names. I could just remember two. But two <laughs> last names. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan Hobson Rigby, I believe. Okay. And this guy, he's, he's a tall, lanky, white guy. This dude, I mean, particularly with this one uh, tribe of black masking Indians, I mean, they know this brother well, and he knows them. I mean, it's just like a beautiful thing to kind of see. And I don't think a lot of people put that type of investment into uh, people who they photograph like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish more people did it like him. I think, yeah, I think there's some photographers who are able to make that human connection and the human connection is always genuine, right? Right. And if you're able to make that human connection in whatever community you're in, then it's going to show in the work. In a lot of situations, there is not that human connection. There is the, the editorial connection, is the financial connection, like I'm going to go shoot this assignment because I'm getting paid to do it. But outside of that, I'm not really trying to connect with the folks that I'm photographing. And that's, again, that's where the problem lies. Right. I agree. It's interesting that you mentioned um, uh, indigenous folks of New Orleans, and you said there's, uh, they, they're considered, they're called Mardi Gras in Indians? Yeah. Uh, I've never heard of, uh, uh, I've never heard the, the term indigenous indigenous folks of New Orleans. Like, I didn't know there was uh, a sect of community. It might not be, to be honest with you. <laughs> it might not be. It's just, uh, when I say that, I'm definitely thinking about uh, New Orleans natives uh, who grew up here and have really become culture bearers and uh, carried it, promoted it, and obviously preserved it. So 
that that's what really what I'm thinking. And then uh, moreover, that the uh, social aid and pleasure club, which came out of benevolent societies, uh, and these are the groups that put on our magnificent second lines. That's a tradition that you know obviously may have ties to. Uh, the African diaspora, but it's a very New Orleans tradition, as well as the Black Masking Indians, Mardi Gras Indians, which uh, is a homage to uh, paying homage to uh, indigenous native people, but it's a very New Orleans tradition. Well, so that's, that's what I mean by indigenous. No, I, I get that. That makes sense. I, when I think to like certain neighborhoods and in Brooklyn, you know, there's indigenous folks that are in East New York, Bed-Stuy, Harlem. You know, these are folks that have been in these places that are responsible for the culture, responsible for the history that has been documented, and for making these places as popular as they are, you know, for, for, for outsiders to want to even be interested in going to visit or even move there, you know. But just like history across the board, these folks get erased and all the work that we've done to create the culture and to create that richness gets erased. And then people just swoop in and try to change everything that, that was created there. You know? I completely agree. That's, that's exactly what I'm, that's my point of contention. Yep. So I think that's a perfect way to, to lead into this next, um, this next topic that I want, I would love for you to, to dive into is the, uh, you have this project based on vanishing black bars in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to speak about that and, and how, the, how that project came about for you. Thank you. That came about, uh, I would say two main influences, Roy DeCarava and more directly with this project, Bernie Ives. Uh, Bernie Ives had this book called Joke Joints. Mm -hmm. So he went around the Mississippi Delta uh, that was very prevalent with these places where folk could get some fried fish, some cold beer, play mm -hmm. pool. Uh, and uh, obviously this is some good music. And he did this in, for about a five-year period in the 80s. Uh, and, you know, when I was in graduate school, I kind of thought to myself, like, man, I should do this for all these black bars in New Orleans. But it was something I wrote in one of my notebooks that, like an idea notebook that I just, if I have an idea, I write it down, and then eventually I try to come back to it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, around maybe 2017, there's this stretch on St. Bernard Avenue between, which St. Bernard Avenue is, uh, this part is in a black neighborhood. Now, this black neighborhood is blocks away from the French Quarter, if that makes sense. So the French Quarter is this very old, historic, very touristy, very white part of the city. Now, I'm not saying it's devoid of black people. That's not what I'm saying. But when you talk about property owners and residents in the French Quarter, it would be, by and large, white people right affluent people mm -hmm. but uh very close to that was the seventh one where st bernard avenue for about six boxes on st bernard avenue six boxes on st bernard avenue they had 
at, at some point in time, eight to 10 black owned bars. When I was coming up and I was old enough to drink, I would go to one of the bars. Uh, I just drew a blank on the name of it. Uh, but that bar is still there. But it was a black owned bar once owned by or uh, run by Karma Ruffins. And then, so this is in 2009, 2010, I would go to this bar. And then in about 2017, the end of 2017, I realized that six of those black bars, only one of them remained to be black. They had all turned white or closed, mostly turned white. Uh, so that idea that I scribbled down in my notebook, I just realized that I needed to do it much sooner than later. So that's where it came from. And uh, there was a, a woman I worked with named Tina Ant, Ant, Antolini. And she's uh, really big into radio interviews and things like that. She she was the, the first editor or producer of Gravy, a magazine with the Southern Foodways Alliance. Uh, and she went on a pop-up magazine. And uh, she called me one day when they had a tour coming to New Orleans and was asking some of the ideas I had. I told her about this Vanishing Black Bars, and she thought it would be a great idea uh, to present at one of their events. So the event is like a live magazine where you read uh, an essay that you wrote, and there's band, uh, compose some music, and then there's a video projection on the back. It's not recorded, performed one time uh, in that place, and that's usually it. Uh, so when she gave me the okay to do this idea, basically I just had to go out and start shooting all those photographs. So that was the impetus of the project, and I haven't really stopped since then. Wow. So how many bars exist currently that you know of? And you know, I should keep count. Um, I know I think I photographed about 10. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a lot more. I look at this as like a census, trying to make it to all the black-owned bars that are still here, and uh, as well as taking some of photos at bars that are no longer black. Uh, so, and I actually started this year working in Pittsburgh too. So I photographed, I think about two two bars, current bars, and one old uh, place, Crawford's Grill that um, Charles Tini Harris would often photograph that was like an E.D. Reeves. Uh, they played jazz there and all kind of things that is in a Hill District that's, that's another area that's rapidly gentrifying. So this is a story that's just limited to New Orleans. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. At first glance, I thought this was just you documenting the bars in NOLA, but it sounds like this is like an ongoing project that's that's anywhere geographically. True. Uh, I've only exhibited photos for New Orleans, and Pittsburgh was my first time intentionally working outside of New Orleans. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the coronavirus, I'm sure by now I would have gone to some other places. Mm -hmm. uh, you just do a road trip. But, exactly. You know, and I, I really have my eye on a lot of cities, but uh, you know, they drink in rural areas too. And there's there's some black establishments in rural areas as well that I, I want to get to. So this is a this is uh 
this is something I'm really excited about. And I look forward to uh, continuing. Man, you know what's crazy now is I'm thinking about the businesses that, that I was supporting before coronavirus uh-huh. that I'm praying will still be around when this is lifted, you know? And right. Because a lot, I mean, black businesses aren't getting those stimulus packages, you know? So I'm just like saying, yeah, praying that our favorite spots are still there when this is all said and done. I mean, this is like the new redlining in the sense where, yes, you know, or what happened with the uh, black soldiers returning home, where they didn't get the GI Bill at the same rate as their white counterparts. It's, it's the same thing. So, you know, going back to what we were saying that we always had to have some type of glimmer of hope mm-hmm. and all the uh, great disparities that we continue to receive or be oppressed with. Yeah, it's like, it's going to put yet another generation ahead by these packages of those that do and those that don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's really, it's really sad. It's really um, frustrating and angering, you know? Right, right. So I wonder if you can describe the feeling of documenting a bar that you, a black bar that you know is on its last legs, like... How do you build a relationship with the owners or the patrons of a spot where you know it's only a matter of time before the before their door is shuttered? That's a good question. Really, it's just like you you try to go in. Uh, well, some of it, my reporting skills help me out with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Where as a reporter, you just constantly talking to strangers, and you try to quickly build some type of rapport to get comfortable and to get the information that you need. Well, in photography, uh, comfort comes through in the images. When someone looks uncomfortable, it's going to read like that. And if you don't have a connection with the, the person who you're photographing, it often shows. So usually uh, it's two ways I do it. So one, I'll go at this black bar if they had a second line. A second line that, these second lines last about four hours and they traverse the city and they have multiple stops at uh, black-owned bars usually. Uh, and they go in there for some respite and you know get a bite to eat and maybe get a drink, use the bathroom, and they come back out and start second lining again. All right, so if you go there during that time, the bars and the patrons expect a lot of people to be in and out all right, so that's one way. Now, if you're going on, so second lines only happen in New Orleans, those type, on Sundays. So if you're going on any other day of the week, uh, I find it easiest if you meet the uh, you meet a bartender who welcomes you in or you meet the owner who welcomes you in. Or sometimes it's a, a patron who is just there all the time who welcomes you in. When I say welcomes you in, it's like you talk to them, you tell them what you're doing, and they say, oh, man, it ain't no thing. Just go ahead, man. Take some pictures. Yeah. And um, and then you go back and you go back and you go back. And, you know, some of these places I've gone enough to where, you know, after I finish working, you know, I'm going to sit there and have some drinks myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some that I, if I feel a little nervous when I first go in, 
I might have a drink or something like that. Usually I don't have to do that. Um, and when I say nervous, it's, I liken it to going into the high school cafeteria for the first day mm-hmm. and you a new student, you know, everybody know you knew. You know, so it's just like, oh lord. Or like, or like, if you switch barbershops, you go into the, you go right. into the new barbershop. You just like, I don't know who, who I'm gonna, whose seat I'm gonna sit in. I don't know what their coach exactly. is, right? You know, um, what's interesting about that is a lot of people think that when you're from a certain community, that you automatically get the pass to photograph. And this right. is like you're born and bred in, in, in New Orleans and even still, like you're, you're a black man with a camera and you're going to a black owned bar with black patrons and there's this misconception that just by that fact those facts alone, you can walk in there, take the camera out and start getting getting photos. There's still trust that has to be built in every situation, right? So I'm glad to hear you share about some of your your techniques on how you build trust, you know, at the beginning of a project. You have to, man. And then imagine, you know, when I do it here in New Orleans, man, I I take my own car, I drive, I'm usually traveling really light, you know, uh, I did this in Pittsburgh, bro. And (laughs) it was super duper cold in February. (laughs) And I just had an Uber so I had my digital gear and I had a four by five with me. Wow. Man, it was it was something else. So it's like, you know, uh, my dad always said a hand is quicker than I. And even though you're around your people and I look like the people because I am the people, you know, that don't mean somebody ain't can steal your gear. So it's like, you know, I'm like trying to take photographs and I got all this gear with me. It was just a mess, but I got through it. And in uh, and, and Pittsburgh, they still smoke in the bars, too. So wow. that was a whole nother kind of thing, man. Every day I would come home to my um, hotel, and I would just throw my clothes in a closet and just... And then I just started wearing the same clothes, because it's like, man, you know, uh, I don't want all my clothes to smell like smoke, so I would just keep wearing the same thing. Wow. That's, yeah, that's interesting, man. Um, so, what did the, what did it feel like photographing white patrons in a black bar, knowing that like gentrification was occurring? Uh, most of the white patrons that I photographed, mm-hmm. it was in a white bar that was was once black. Well, both of them. One bar has embraced itself or ingratiated itself to the black community, in that. Um, the black masking Indians that were once there, uh, they're still there. So when I when I say there, a lot of black masking Indians, they they leading up to Mardi Gras, they have uh, Indian practice where they they sing and they dance and they greet each other. And on Mardi Gras day, a lot of them get dressed at certain bars. And the social aid and pleasure clubs, I already told you about the stops or whatnot. So when this black owned bar sold to uh, some white folk that tradition didn't stop. Now, there's another bar uh, on St. Bernard Avenue where that bar is totally devoid of any of its institutional history. It is completely devoid of blackness now. It's like still in this 
you know, changed the neighborhood, but it's like grunge and heavy metal. And it's just, I'm shaking my head. You can't see me, but <laughs> like, I, all I can say is just, I, I, it ain't black at all anymore. And nothing about it to me would really welcome the black community who once uh, were patrons there. Well, once you change the culture so drastically, that's showing you that, you know, there's no, like, we're starting with a brand new audience, a brand new customer in mind. And it ain't you. Right. Exactly. I completely agree. What kind of emotions did you feel during, like, photographing a project like this? It's a range of emotions. Sometimes you feel anger because, like you asked me earlier, and I don't know if I touched on it enough, but you're in this bar uh, that has been open 40 or 50 years, but there's a for sale sign on the door. And you know that more than likely it's not going to be a black person who buys this bar. Now, that just comes down to uh, what we find to be important in our lives. Uh, and what we can afford, what access to capital we have. But uh, a lot of these black bars and neighborhoods that were um, really close to these picturesque white neighborhoods. So a lot of the bars in Central City, they're really close to St. Charles Avenue. That's where we have our old streetcar. They have all these picturesque oak trees and mansions. So about four or five blocks away, that's the black neighborhood, or it was. Like, when I say, like, Central City, like, the neighborhood, neighborhood. Uh, so you have that, that sense of loss. It's a foreboding-type feeling that you have when you're there and you know that it ain't too long that it shall exist as it is. Uh, and then you have anger when you go into some of these other bars that have erased and displaced because that's what it becomes. Mm -hmm. The culture gets displaced. So I have an anger at that. And then I think about, you know, uh, someone, you know, someone might be benefiting off of a GI bill from however many years ago, you know, where their parents were able, their grandparents were able to amass some income and get some equity and kind of things. And, a lot of us are young kids or 30, 40-year-old people uh, just don't have that opportunity. So if we want to have, you know, we we just, I'm sorry to stammer a little bit, we're just not in a place where we could just say, oh, man, I want to I move to New Orleans and I want to open a restaurant and oh, I just want to get a bar and it'll be cool. Like... Yeah, I'm just going to go apply for this loan and I'm going to get the loan and I'm going to open up whatever right. kind of business that I want. It's like we we know that the, it, it doesn't work out that seamlessly for us in a lot of situations. Right. Right. And I'm sure that there's some... Um, and I don't want to paint it with too much of a broad stroke. I'm sure some non-black bar owners and restaurateurs who really had to work for it. And I commend them. But that's not the story for most of their counterparts or so many of their counterparts. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm not, I'm not saying that these people are not talented. That, that's not even an argument. Because there's plenty of chefs in New Orleans or cooks in New Orleans who are hella talented, but they'll never be recognized. It's plenty of everything in New Orleans who, and throughout the world, who have plenty of talent, but they'll, they'll never get the recognition uh, that they deserve for a number of reasons. I think people like us are um, sometimes the outliers, you know, and, I, and I'm thankful. Sometimes, you know, I believe in God and things like that. But sometimes, I, you know, I don't, I don't question him as in, like, you made the wrong choice. But sometimes I wonder, like, how, how me, you know, or why me? Um, you know, I didn't go to, I, you know, I told you my degrees, none of them in art. Mm-hmm. None of them in photojournalism. Uh, you know, I worked at a newspaper coming out of graduate school, a New York Times regional newspaper, man. And for some kind of reason, I got into a, a bit where I just couldn't spell any goddamn thing. And I lasted there two months. I knew I was going to get fired. Uh, I don't know if you ever worked in a newsroom, but on election night, it don't give a good goddamn what your beat is you're going to be writing about some politics. Mm-hmm. And they told me I could go home election night. And this was 2008. So it was like on a cusp of America having its first black president. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, the, the writing's on the wall. I'm finna get fired. Mm-hmm. And I did. So 12 years later, you know, I've had three features in the New York times this year. Uh, I'm the same person, you know, hopefully I've improved in 12 years, but it's just, you know, my wife was kind of asking me, what does that mean to you? And if you could say anything to your kids about this, what would it be? And I told her that, you know, don't let anyone define you. You know, if they say you can't do something, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, you have to believe in yourself. And, uh, and if that's what your passion is, just to continue to refine your craft. And it's not always about, someone's rejection of you is not always about your own skills. It could be something within them, you know? And uh, I thought that was stupid on their part in the sense that I went there knowing how to write. I had an understanding of video as well as photography. And this is at the time where, you know, newsrooms were getting lean and you need someone who could do all these kind of things. You see, I don't have that type of leeway like other people do, you make a mistake and or they still work with you. But, you know, it just is what it is. I mean, it sounds like what you're touching on may be a little bit of survivor's guilt. You know, um, when you mention you don't question God, but sometimes you ask why why you, like why are you in this situation where you didn't go to school for for this, but you are you know, working as a full-time photographer, full-time storyteller. And, um, you know, that's that's challenging because uh, I feel like that too sometimes. And I think as black folks, there, there does come a point where if you're doing well in a certain area or you're not exposed to certain, you know, atrocities that other black folks are, then it's like, how come those things dodged me, you know? Or how, how did I dodge those things, you know? And 
it's tough because we're all going through some sort of oppression, right? But if I dodge one form right. of oppression, then I'm like, man, how did I dodge that? You know, like what what makes me so special? But then I'm dealing with another form of oppression that somebody else is not dealing with, and then they're asking themselves, how do they dodge that? You know, it's like we're always in this state of survival, trying to figure out like if if something good happens to us or for us, we get like a good opportunity. We're not always able to embrace that opportunity because we're doubting if we're even worthy of having that thing. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, maybe it is. I, I haven't, I know once I've had survivor, survivor's guilt and that, that had to do, that was definitely related to Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say this like, and I may have it, it just may not recognize it, but I definitely don't feel guilty about making it out or making it to where I am now. I just sometimes wonder how, mm-hmm. really. Um, you know, and I've been in New Orleans, man. It's just, and I say New Orleans because this is where I live. And you know, I've written about this once, like trying to find a full-time job. You know, trying to find a job was like trying to find a full-time job. There was a period in my life where I was uh, applying services after. So now, you know, no, no knock against anyone who's done time, been incarcerated, and has been able to uh, come back and start contributing to society. So I, I don't mean anything against, when I say this, I don't mean a knock against anything like that. Uh, but, I, you know, so when I retired to New Orleans with two degrees, I could pass any drug test possible, uh, no criminal record at all. It was hard as hell to find a job. I mean, hard. Um, and there was a period in time where I was applying for, uh, like, the director of communications at, at some company and UPS on the same day. And then, like, kind of lying about my resume at UPS. Like, you know, I just put some college. Cause I, I didn't want them to think that I would, that I didn't want them to think that maybe I thought I was too good. And it was so funny to do that. UPS was asking me about gaps in my employment. I'm like, dude, I can lift the boxes, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, you know, so it's like, if this is my experience, you know, if I found it, that, that much adversity, I had that much adversity trying to get, employment what about the person who maybe didn't finish college what about the person who was a good dude or a good woman but they just might have got caught up in a little trouble so now they got a little mistake on their record yeah so i I just always think to myself like man if it's been this hard for me Mm -hmm. what about them they say you know we got to work twice as hard to get half the credit and yeah. You know, we look at the state of the industry and, you know, there's still a lack of diversity um, in photographers and the, the types of stories we cover uh, in, the, in the editing space, in the director of photography space, in the journalist space, you know, and we're there, but, you know, it's still like, it's, it's still like completely imbalanced. Especially when you start to look at the amount of talent 
that's out there because now the internet is making it hard for anybody to ignore the fact that, yo, we have talent. There's talent out there. There's no more excuses, right? It's just the, um, the availability of opportunities are just not trickling, trickling down. I agree. You know, I'll say this, and, and I tell my friends, uh, I have one, Osai Edlin. She's a writer. She won a James Beard Award. Um, a guy named Tunde Way. All these people in the food space, Tunde Way, and another guy, Dr. Howard Conyers, uh, who's like a, a rocket scientist and a, and a pit master. So I've worked with, I know them, and I've worked with them before. And I know for a fact, all three of them, when they have the opportunity, they'll shine a light back on the industry in the sense that, like, okay, uh, how diverse are you being in this hiring process? Have you looked at editors of color? Okay. All right. Uh, so who's writing this article? Okay. Who's photographing this article? Okay. Well, I'm not going to participate if you don't have some black representation. And all three of them, I know for a fact, have done that, and it's encouraged me. So even when sometimes I'm on the other side of the camera and someone wants to feature me, I'm asking, well, who's you know who's telling the story? Who's taking the pictures? Mm-hmm. And we have to realize that we have some agency and we have power. If so, if people want to feature us and tell our stories, we should have some control over who's doing it. And it's if we're not doing that. And what? And I also know some white folk who have done that too. I really do. You know, like saying, like, you know what? Maybe this job ain't the job for me. Mm-hmm. But I know somebody who can do it. You know? Maybe this other photographer should tell this story. That's important. Especially if, right. if these photographers are freelancers and they live and die by every assignment that they get. But to, to get an assignment and say, you know what? I can use this bread right now, but, you know, my integrity is really important as well. And I don't think that I'm the right person for this. So I'm going to pass it on to right. the person who it is right for. We need more of that. And I think hopefully when those situations happen, you know, the editors who are assigning these projects realize that that's something that they should be taking a look at themselves. And the next time they have a project, and they need to assign it, they assign it accordingly to who's most appropriate or who's the most relevant to photograph it instead of just, you know, dishing it out to their favorite photographer who gets 90% of their work, you know? And you, and you said exactly what I was going to say. Um, and just to reiterate, so it takes us doing it, but it takes them doing it as well. Yep. Them uh, being able to self-reflect and realize what they do and don't have in their uh, proverbial Rolodex, what they do or don't have in their proverbial newsroom or whatever publication it is that they're working on. And that's important. Mm-hmm. You are on the board of trustees at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art, as well as the right. board of directors of the New Orleans Photo Alliance. What do your duties right. consist of, man? It was like... Those are two pretty, sound like two pretty big roles, you know, especially as a full-time photographer, full-time storyteller. So how do you juggle your time and like, what are your duties in those roles? Um, they're both very different. Uh, obviously they're both 
are institutions that support the arts. The Ogden is a much bigger organization than the uh, New Orleans Photo Alliance. When I joined the board of New Orleans Photo Alliance, initially I was a communications chair. I eventually had to take a step back from that because at the time, basically I was doing communications for myself. I was doing communications for the full-time job I had. Mm -hmm. And then that meant that I was now doing communications for the organization as well. And when I say communications, like press releases and all that type of stuff. And I just didn't have the time for it. I just really didn't. And, you know, you know, I don't want to be known as a great press release writer, you know, that's is in my bag, it's in my toolbox, but that's, that's not what I want to do. Uh, but some of the things that we've been able to do, um, at the board is, uh, to, in, to increase inclusivity and to try to make the organization more welcoming and then to make it a photography community. And, uh, the president, Lisa Cates, she's, uh, been really good about that and very intentional. I didn't realize uh, the organization is, uh, I think, about 15 or 20 years old. And every year doing uh, uh, Photo NOLA, they have a big speaker, a keynote speaker. And it wasn't until recently that we had the first black keynote speaker, uh, the the Simmons, Zavaria, Xavier Simmons, a, a woman photographer. She's, she's great. Um, so, and on the Ogden, like I said, it's a much bigger board. I'm one of the younger people in their room. I'm only one of two artists. The other artist is Ron Bechet, and uh, he's really established. He's also a professor at a university. So I've been always trying to find my voice on that board because it's interesting. You're sitting in a room with a lot of very influential people. And uh, one of the things I've always been pushing for is diversifying the tutorial team. Now, the curators at the Ogden, I enjoy working with them. Bradley, Summerall, Summerall and uh, Richard McCabe. But I don't want the Ogden to be the last museum to start having curators or tutorial team that's more than just white men. And they know I feel this way because I, I wrote about it in a book. Uh, they had a book called New Southern Photography, and I wrote an essay called The Dismantling of Southern Photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know... On those two boards, they're very different. One's intimate, you know, maybe 10, 15 people. One's 40, 50 people. And then they both try to do a lot of things to engage the art community. And uh, I'm always trying to find out how to best contribute to both of them. But one of the legacies I like to leave on the Ogden board is to help spearhead us uh, getting a a curator of color. Uh, so, you know, you, I think I'm on my second term. You have three year appointments. So I might be still on year three and then going into year, you know, four through six. Okay. So hopefully I have some time. Um, but that's what it's like on that board. And I'm, 
the chair of the audience engagement committee. And then that, uh, like a lot of organizations, it's usually committees that you can make the most impact. So on that one, we're just always trying to find new and innovative ways to continue engaging with the community and to make people feel welcome and to uh, make sure people have a great experience at the museum and to keep them coming back and to cultivate new members and new art appreciators. So that's been my biggest responsibility so far. Yeah, that's great, man. It's like, you know, I see your experience, your college experience with the, all the business uh, information you have, and then this, this experience serving as serving as uh, on the board of these two organizations, just and, and your community awareness, you know, is just like leading you to experience your photography in a really well-rounded way. You know, it gives like your work a lot of substance and a lot of impact, and it's not just like fluff photos. You know, like it feels like. You're very purposeful in everything that you're doing, and it shows in your work, and 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 how you choose to like, you know, find other opportunities to to make opportunities for other folks. Thank you. Yeah, I I hope that I hope that's one of my legacies. You know, hopefully I have so much longer to go. You know, I'm just always trying to you know, build relationships with people. That's why this call is so important to me. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we need each other, man. We need each other. Um, and how we can assist each other, I think it's it's better for everyone. Yeah, and uh, I have a lot, yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of photography friends who don't look like me at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I can call on these brothers when I need them, uh, vice versa. Mm-hmm. And what having those relationships in my life have, have made it that much easier for me. Um, and mentorship is really important to me too. Yeah, man, we don't do this by ourselves. We're not on an island. You know, we 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 getting information and feedback and critiques from our colleagues. You know, we um, we learn from their work and their experiences, you know, um, and sometimes they look out for us by passing opportunities to us and vice versa. And um, all of that is important as long as you're building strong relationships. But there is something also very important about relationships with folks who have very similar situations or similar experiences that nobody else can relate to. So it's not, it's not like close yourself off to anybody who's different from us or who has a different experience, but it's also like knowing that you need a safe space where you can communicate with people who can relate to, to what you're going through and you need another space where you can just talk about photography or talk about whatever's going on in the industry. I agree. I, I I totally agree. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think most of my photography community, uh, as far as uh, black people are concerned, they if they're my peers, 
Well, most of my photography community within blackness, they're a little bit older than me. Yeah. Uh, and then here, my photography community in New Orleans is mostly white. Uh, and they're like my peers, same age. And the photographers that the photographers who I have the best relationship with in New Orleans uh, again are older than me. Um, which is interesting to me because I think I'm a pretty friendly guy, but uh, I I don't I only know a few photographers my age here, uh, which is which is interesting. And most of them are probably about five or ten years younger, and. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, someone told me that they think it's good to have a, pay, a peer mentor and then also like a seasoned mentor. And he said, always with a seasoned mentor, you can be vulnerable with that person in a different way that you can be with the peer. So even though your peer might have, uh, y'all clearly have your best interests in mind, he said, sometimes it's still that inheritance, inherent. Uh, competition yeah. and or inability to be vulnerable. Uh, a guy named Greg Addison told me that. So I, I think about that. So you know, I definitely can look back and, and think of like, um, you know, I could really just, and I've done it a bunch, just send him a text message and just get on the phone with Dawood Bay. And uh, that's just like a beautiful kind of thing for me. But now that I think about it, when I was younger, I would do the same thing with Wynn Marcellus. You know, like, hey, what's going on? How can I do this? And then more directly with his brother, Delphia, who uh, continues to live in New Orleans. And uh, that's just invaluable resources and access to information that, you know, a lot of people don't get. So I guess sometimes when I ask God, you know, uh, what has separated me? I would think that's one of the things. Like, in addition to doing the work, uh, just out of genuine curiosity, meeting people, and genuinely hitting it off and continuing that relationship. Who we associate ourselves with definitely goes a long way in many areas. Say you're the average of the five people you spend your most the most time with, you know. So I choose wisely. Yeah. Right. So Casimo, what's next yeah. for you? What's on your plate, man? I know, like right now we're dealing with uh, this pandemic, but um, you know what you got cooking in the oven. Yeah, really getting back to this black bars. Uh, really, really getting to that and uh, just start putting pen to paper and writing. I need to write, I need to do some more oral histories. And then um, I have two other projects. So part of my practice is these, uh, you know, everyday uh, sites of life or documented photography photos. Uh, but another part of my practice is, you know, uh, constructed reality things like uh, evidenced by like this blackness continuum series or one benighted series and this one series so when I say constructed realities these are things that are based in truth but all the photos are staged alright so um, I want to get back to a, 
a project that kind of marries, you know, this this based in fact truth telling as well as this constructed reality truth telling. And that would be uh, a project about a woman named Fox Rich, who was incarcerated. Uh, her and her husband, Rob Rich, uh, their full name is Richardson, uh, basically were some entrepreneurs in the 90s and were about to start a hip-hop clothing shop. And their investor backed out on them. And so in the act of desperation, these two people who have never done anything criminal decide to rob a bank. So no one was harmed. And uh, another act of desperation, they basically uh, did some jury tampering. Uh, so in the end, they were collectively facing about 297 years in prison. Uh, so he spent about 20 years in prison and she spent about three. Uh, so with the Newcomb Museum of Art, they got us to do, they have this exhibit called Per Sister, Incarcerated Women of Louisiana. And I made six pieces based on their story. Mm-hmm. And I want to continue to uh, suss that project out. So they provided us with an oral history or an interview. And then I went back and interviewed Fox Rich in addition to the first interview that I heard just to kind of get the details that I needed. And I embodied her story. So I had another woman portray Fox Rich. And uh, this is the first time I've used text and images at the same time, uh, which is interesting being someone who started writing before photography. So the, 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 the texts were direct quotes from her that correlated with the situation that I was embodying. So I've gone back and read, reread her book, and uh, I want to go back and interview her again and really just start to drill down on that, uh, this story and embodying that. So that's some of the things that I'm most excited about, the Black Bars and Fox Rich and, uh, you know, just trying to get a solo show that travels and get a book and do a documentary and as they say, just do all the things, to be honest with you, bro. All right, so it sounds like you have a pretty short list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, no doubt, man. So, Asimu, do me a favor and tell folks where they can find more of your work and find out more about you. Well, uh, com. so that's L-K-A-S-I-M-U, H-A-R-R-I-S dot com. And then on social media, I'm Visions and Verbs, uh, both on Instagram as well as Twitter. Well, everything that Kasimu just shared will be on the show notes on this page. So head over to BlackShutterPodcast.com, check out his page, and you can find more links to his work. And uh, on that note, bro, appreciate you coming through and uh, chopping it up. Thank you, good brother. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for this. Thanks for this platform. Thanks for uh, your brilliant interviewing skills. This is El Casino Harris, and you are tuned into the Black Shutter Podcast. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who tuned into this episode. Thank you for listening. The Black Shutter Podcast is hosted by me, Idris Talib Solomon. To subscribe to the Black Shutter Podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. When you get there, show us some love by dropping a five-star rating or leaving a review. 
This will help with our rankings, which essentially helps more black photographers get exposure. Make sure to check us out online at blackshutterpodcast.com to read the show notes, learn more about our guests, and check out some of their work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Peace. Until next time.